Well, it is a, uh, it's a real privilege and an honor to be here, um, to be with you. Um, we, uh, uh, the Oak is uh, meeting, starts in about 12 minutes' time, and uh, one of the things that I have been really enjoying over the last couple of months is just pondering what it means for the church to be gathering right across our nation at the same time and across, our, across the world. That Actually, 12 hours ago, people were kind of getting up and we're gathering together to start praising Jesus on a Sunday morning. And in 12 hours' time, they'll be finished. There's a something of the, just the, the expanse and the, the hugeness of what God is doing across our world. And sometimes it's really important to see that. When you look around here and you're like, yeah, this is great, yeah. Actually, there are millions upon millions upon millions of people gathering all across the world. And that's only on Sunday mornings. You know, there's a Sunday evening and a Sunday afternoon gathering for Mosaic. Well, there is for tons of other churches. There are midweek meetings happening. I mean, it's just the scale and the size. And so we feel, I think, as the oak, a part of what uh, Mosaic is, but also a part of what is happening in our nation and in the world. So it's a real privilege and an honor to be here. My name is Chris Mason, as has already been uh, alluded to. Um, and I am one of the leaders at the Oak Church um, in West Leeds, East Bradford. Um, I, too, want to say hello to the Indiana team. You guys served us so well last year and the year before, um, and uh, it's really nice to see you uh, here. About 12 years ago, um, my wife Lisa and I moved to Leeds to join Matt and Pip and a team that were planting a new church uh, here in this city called Mosaic Church. And uh, when you were just one gathering uh, and you were really small and it was, it was just a few people going, I wonder what would happen if... And so it's a real joy today I get to speak at all three gatherings. And for me, that's just a proper big joy. Excuse the grammar, but it just is. It's a a really exciting thing. It's a continual joy to watch God, um, to watch how God uses you in this city and keeps growing you in depth and in number. And you're a beautiful picture of the church. Um, So I just want to, I guess, from another church, say well done. Um, You guys are amazing. And if you're visiting this church this morning, then you've stepped into something that is quite profound and unique uh, in our city. Um, I hope this message today uh, brings some encouragement to you. Uh, I really hope it brings some challenge, of course, but uh, I hope it brings uh, some encouragement to you and what you're doing. I do bring today, as with the epistles, I bring to you greetings from the Oak, uh, from our team. Um, there is a full awareness of me being here today, and so we as a church love you and uh, want to support you in everything you're doing. We are continually blessed as a church by you and your leaders, uh, continually shaping us, and for that we are truly thankful. Last week we prayed in our leadership team and our eldership team for the first time in the last six years since we planted and uh, you Matt was there from your team as were six other churches leaders represented from our family who have just supported and encouraged us and we are a bigger family than just what happens on our Sunday mornings and it's a really important thing for us to grasp that the church is much bigger than we see Um, so today I want to speak to you from the book of Acts The book of Acts is a book of miraculous beginnings, of supernatural wonders, of philosophical discoveries, but above all, of a group of people who have been changed by Jesus, living out their lives in cities and in regions surrounding their home. It's a really ordinary book. It's also a great book because if you like the rest of the New Testament, you can find all the New Testament placed in the timeline of Acts. It's like, it it kind of is the big story running through, and then like Ephesians and Philippians and Galatians and Romans, all 
all drop into Acts. I'm sure you know that, but uh, I find Acts a really exciting book. And I am preaching on Acts 17 this morning, aware that you are mid-series if you are part of Mosaic here then uh, there is a full series going on in Acts that have gone back seven or eight weeks, I think, and will go forward a few more weeks. And I'm sure you could find those online and listen to other people's, etc., etc. Um, we're going to hone in on chapter 17, verse 16 to 34. So if you have a Bible or a phone with it on or whatever, if you could find that, the bits that we're looking at will appear on the screen behind me, so you can just follow them there if you like. Um, we're going to work bit by bit through it. It's a chapter full of love for a city and its people. And I, I really like story in the scripture, so I would normally just tell you the story. But this morning, I feel actually we can get lots from it if we work through it bit by bit. So I'm not going to read the whole thing out at the start. We'll read it through as we go. So if you've got someone near you with a Bible, it's helpful to just kind of peer over their shoulder because you'll see the whole lot. If there's someone three or four places down, get them to shift the Bible down so it's in the middle between you and then you can see what's going on. It's a passage that talks about the nearness of God in the midst of this beautiful city and its culture, that God is near, that to love our city and its people is to show his nearness to our city, to draw our city toward God and release it to be all it can. I'd love to pray about this passage and then we will get stuck in. Father, thank you that every word of scripture is God-breathed. We thank you this morning that as we come to join in the story of your church, Lord, we find ourselves in the extended version of Acts, Lord, in a city proclaiming the gospel. And we pray, Lord, this morning as we look at this passage, would you speak to us? Would you reveal Jesus to us? Holy Spirit, would you lead us and uh, draw us more towards you? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Will I always be defined by my mistakes? In the eyes of a saint, I'm a stranger. We were trying to find a way. At the death of every darkness, there's a morning. Though we all try. We all try, we're all one step from grace. I really enjoy the Rag and Bow Man. Does anyone else like the Rag and Bow Man here? He's the guy who uh, sang uh, I'm Only Human, and uh, I sing that to everyone around me. I'm only human, after all. But um, he has this beautiful passage there. Will I always be defined by my mistakes? In the eyes of a saint, I'm a stranger. We're all trying to find a way. At the death of every darkness, there's a morning. Though we all try, we all try. We're all one step from grace. Rory, who is the rag and bone man, that's his name, uh, the writer of that song seems to in some small way sum up our pursuit of something much bigger, much better and more gracious, more accepting than we find all around us, that somehow we're all just one step away from grace. He's a man born and bred on the south coast, as am I. Please forgive me. Um, but he obviously loves life. And uh, you can tell by just uh, hearing interviews um, on here. He loves life. And he loves the cities that he has lived in. And he's had the joy of living. He's a man who captures something of the personal pursuit of grace. 
or maybe not having yet found it. The U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There's a sense of music somehow communicating something of what the human heart always longs for. This pursuit of grace, this receiving something that you don't deserve is, uh, is found in the eloquence and the creativity of song. Now, I love Leeds. I do. Leeds has been my home for the past 12 years until I moved to Bradford four months ago. And so now I love Bradford. And, uh, and I have, but I'm in Leeds, so I can say, actually, I really love Leeds. I love Leeds. Leeds and Bradford are two very, very different cities. If you live or work in Bradford, they are very, very different cities. And I am enjoying getting to know Bradford and its culture and its people. But I love Leeds. Leeds is a city full of all sorts of people doing all sorts of things from all sorts of places and backgrounds. It's this amazing hodgepodge. It has this beautiful history of a Yorkshire people, proud to be Yorkshire, but welcoming in trade, welcoming study, welcoming those looking for a new life, welcoming those from the nations of being a much bigger city than uh, maybe others. It's a city of cities. It's a city of nations. It's a city of hope. And it's a city that doesn't just follow culture, but often creates it. The place where Rory's from is, or near, and the place where he, li- he currently lives is Brighton on the south coast, is a place that kind of influences the country in more than just its size. And Leeds is a similar place. It creates culture in our nation and in the world that maybe it shouldn't because of its size. It's a city of song, of writing, of creativity, of hard work and grit. But let me tell you a story of another city this morning that you'll find in this passage of our, in the scriptures. It's a city that's not too dissimilar to ours. And I want to tell you a story of a guy called Paul who was a tent maker. Do we have any tent makers in the room? I now know a friend who's a pole repairer for tents, so I feel like I have some affiliation to it, but I don't really know any tent makers. Um, uh, he's a guy who has who had his life turned around by God from a religious zealot to being a Jesus follower. And I do want to say there's a major difference between being a religious zealot and a Jesus follower. And you may be here this morning following religion or following Christianity, but there's a major difference between a religious zealot and a Jesus follower. And hopefully the, the difference will come out as we go. Paul was a murderer who had been forgiven by God and then set about freeing others from guilt and shame. He met Christ in a blinding vision on a road as he was heading to kill people and it redirected his life. I've met people, we have people in our church who have come to know Jesus through visions. God just sometimes intervenes in tremendous ways and we don't expect it but he does. And this is the story of a man who God intervened in a tremendous and miraculous way. He spent a good time trying to convince the apostles, who were the disciples uh, of Jesus and were now trying to figure out how to bring the gospel into the area. He had a a hard time convincing them that he wasn't there to murder them, because if you had spent your whole time murdering Christians, to hang around them would be a bit difficult. Can you imagine this morning, if, say, for example, Matt, can you come to the front here? So, so, come to the front here. It's all right. We just on Facebook. Um, If, you know, Matt, Matt has, uh, Matt's, Matt's, Killed a few of your family members, and uh, uh, he hasn't. Just, just to make that really clear, this is a picture and illustration. Uh, Matt, Matt has killed a few of your family. Uh, he's responsible for sending people into your te- into your streets and causing havoc. Okay, and this morning he's here to tell you that he's following Jesus. Okay. You, whilst one bit of you is going to be like, yeah, hallelujah. There's going to be a major bit of you that's going to be running for the door. Is there not? Is it, yeah? You can sit down now. That, 
Paul had the same thing. He had a really hard time convincing the, the apostles that he really had been transformed. And it took, scholars reckon, maybe up to about 10 years for him to convince them enough for him then to start going on mission. But they sent him out to tell people what had happened. And he heads all over the place and he stumbles into this seaport. And he starts telling people about Jesus in the synagogue. That's a Jewish place of worshipping and teaching because he was a Jew who persecuted these new Christians. And so he knew the kind of customs, etc. So he often went straight to the synagogue and started speaking there. And they got really annoyed with him because he was speaking about Jesus. And they're like, can you please just teach what is in our scriptures? And, and he was like, yeah, I will, but Jesus. And they got really annoyed with him. And, uh, and they arrested his friends, a guy called Jason, just before the passages we're looking at. And so his friends sent him away in the night. They said, you're just going to have to go. You're causing too much issue and you're going to get killed tomorrow. So let's just send you away. And he heads to a nearby town and he starts again. And the people from the seaport hear about this and they come and cause problems for him again. All right, you've just moved to Holbeck. Okay, and then they head down and they start speaking about him there and trying to arrest him there. And so this time, while some of his his mates wait behind for a bit, his other friends take him to a different port and they put him on a boat that's going a long way away and they say, send him away and hopefully the people in the other seaport won't know where he's gone and he might live that is the background to the story and he arrives in a city in Greece called Athens anyone heard of Athens yeah I think most of us have heard of Athens Athens huge city in Greece and he arrives there and here's where we pick up the story Acts 17 verse 16 now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul has a completely different response in Athens than any of the other cities that he's, he's visited. And he visited a fair amount and he's going to go on to visit quite a few. Athens was a city of cities. It was, a cities that, it was a city that had a disproportionate influence on the known world to its size. It was a city uh, where a pl- it, it was a place that didn't just follow culture but created it. Didn't just follow religion but created it. Didn't just follow philosophy but created it and sent it all around the known world. Athens, to be honest, was a city a little bit like Leeds in that way. He didn't just see a city though full of people, but a city full of culture, and it amazed him and provoked his spirit. Now I love Leeds, as I've already said. But it provokes my spirit. It really does. The poverty, the brokenness, the loneliness, the desperation, the breakdown of friendship and relationship. They provoke my spirit. The heartache of broken dreams and shattered lives. The difficulty of generational cycles and fixes to problems that don't exist. And problems that have fixes that haven't been created yet. It's just a city full of so much difficulty. And his spirit, his gut, his core was provoked as he saw that everyone was searching for something. Everyone was looking And philosophers trying to understand life and death and everything in between. There were religious people searching after God, after God, after God. There were workers striving to make ends meet, striving for the illusion of happiness in wealth. There were nobles dominating dominating people aiming to get on top of an ever-increasing shallow elite. There were families pushing their kids to the nth degree in their education in an effort to, under I guess the guise of giving them the best start, live out the failed dream or opportunities that they never had you name it it was there in this city and you name it it's here in our city 
is here in our city. It's right here. Maybe you have just read yourself into this story. Yeah, I'm one of those. Yeah, that's me. That's my life. I'm searching but haven't found yet. Or maybe I've found, but I, get, I so struggle to hold that in its context. I wonder this morning, is your spirit provoked by your city? Not in a judgmental way, but in a way that causes you to want the best for it. To love it, to see it, and want more for it. And so, he reasoned in the, in, the, in the synagogue with the Jews, and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So we get to our first point this morning, is to love broadly, to be amazed by our cities and its people, and to love, to engage, to be part of, to let it provoke us. Paul walked into a city and didn't judge it, but was compelled by it, was drawn into it. Now cities in scripture are places of culture and vibrancy, they're often places of darkness and difficulty and you'll find that particularly in the Old Testament, cities defined in those ways. But cities are places that are full of people and God loves people and so God loves these places where people live. They are often places of darkness and difficulty, but they're also places of incredible diversity and opportunity. Two things that God creates and recreates in us constantly. Now, I serve at a food bank each week. Uh, I don my green penny, and uh, I think I look quite dashing in it. Uh, I don't have a photo for you this morning. Um, but uh, I don my green penny, and I sit down with people from all walks of life. There's no kind of barrier as to who comes in uh, in a food bank. Uh, I've sat with musicians, professional musicians. I've sat with mums, professional mums. I've sat with grandparents and students and addicts and mortgage payers and people arriving in fancy cars because they're loaned up to the hilt and people arriving with absolutely nothing except the bag that they carry. And you sit down at the same table and you talk about the same things and ultimately there's still bags of food that need to be handed over. We're in a city that has all sorts of different people but we all carry the same needs. They're all people Our spirit is provoked when we recognize that people are people are people. People are people. And Paul's own history as a murdering zealot puts him in the gutter with everyone else. It puts him in a place. It puts his history as a learned elite. Sorry, but his history as a learned elite puts him also in the places of influence as well. Somehow Paul can operate in these different places. He grasps what it is to have nothing And he grasped what it is to have everything. You see, Paul knew what it was to be judged and to be found guilty. When he met Jesus in a vision on the road to Damascus, Jesus said to him, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. He had judged others and he had been found judged. And it would have been easy for him to have hurled abuse at those who followed Epicureanism or Stoic philosophies for seeking virtue through self-control or pleasures through the absence of pain. But Paul's spirit is provoked. He sees real people and he wants to engage with their heart because he knows we're all searching for a God of hope. We're all searching to be loved and not to be judged. And there's an encouragement in Paul's visit to Athens to see the city for what it is. 
a melting pot of people. People who deserve to know the God of all light. People who deserve to know hope. Who, if they could discover God, might find joy where they've never found it before. Might find love as they've been searching for it. It's a city. And the problem with loving a city broadly, though, is you feel its successes and you feel its failures. And that's what draws Paul to speak. It really hurts. If you have ever dwelt for just a moment on the difficulties of Leeds or of our nation, it would have drawn you and it would have broken your heart in some way. It draws you to frustration and anger, but it also draws us to weep and to cry. God, what, why? What, why that? Why this? And Paul is grappling with these things. He was overawed by the scale and the beauty of Athens but also the difficulties in a city with so many cultures that everyone's fighting for their version of the truth. And so he sets about reasoning. Not arguing, but reasoning. Honouring and respecting the city and its peoples. Discussing and finding common ground. Suggesting different ways of seeing what has always been seen. They all knew the new philosophies, but they didn't know about Jesus. And so Paul starts to speak about Jesus. Faith in Jesus, who he is and what he's done is different from every other religion or philosophy. It has a crucified man at its heart who was raised from the dead and whose disciples were willing to be killed as they spread the gospel of good news of Jesus. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He'd already had discussions. He didn't arrive at the Areopagus and say, uh, can I just fit into the next slot please? Uh, is it a 10.15? Great, I've got some points I'd like to say. He was sharing and talking with people and people said, would you come and share what, you've, what you're speaking about? Because what you're speaking about is kind of life-changing and we, there, was a, there was an interest in it. And so they invite him to the Areopagus where he is then able to speak about what he really believes in. I think sometimes we take the ground that we're allowed to speak truth into people's lives without actually building any form of relationship or trust beforehand. We have to be careful sometimes. Those are great moments. And often God uses those miraculous moments, probably like on the street evangelism, etc., that really God just meets in a moment and people get transformed. But often, often there is relationship that needs to be built that gives permission to be able to speak into someone's life and say, you're searching after this. Let me tell you about Jesus. And it unhinges what's going on. Paul grasped his own frailty, his saviour's resurrection and the breadth of the city and it gave him a platform to speak. He grasps the city's culture which gives him a place to start in sharing the news of Jesus. He was taken to the Areopagus, the court of the nobles uh, in Greco-Roman culture, historically the place of decision making. He is invited into that place. Last week I got to stand in Bradford uh, council chambers with about 20 other people and pray and worship. We were invited to come in, not with all the other people there. We were just there at 7 a.m. able to pray and worship. But then you think of what has happened in our last week. You think of the MPs that will gather there next week. And we, we, we build relationship and we honor the city that then gives a platform for us to begin to speak into a city and bring about what's going on. He wasn't scared or threatened by, his, by the city. He wasn't worried or cynical about all these other things. He would have been surrounded by statues of Zeus, pictures of Olympian deities, the temple of Apollo, and the sanctuary of the mother of gods. And he wasn't scared or threatened. 
I remember meeting in Holy Trinity Church when Mosaic was tiny and we were meeting there and on all the windows is kind of really historical, typically Masonic um, figures all the way around on the glass. Were we worried or scared? Proclaiming Christ in the middle of a city. Christ is bigger and better than all of those things. And we'll get into that. I wonder, are you asking who Jesus is? I wonder, are you surrounded by things pretending to help but don't? I wonder, are you worried that the other stuff might be more powerful than Jesus? I wonder, is there a part of your life where, whether you're a Christian or not, that is searching for meaning, for hope, for something else? Do you know, we lost a friend a few months ago, um, she was uh, a mum to uh, some of the friends of our kids. Our kids are very young, and so this person was about our age. And uh, it causes you to ask big questions. It's not kind of like, yes, at the point where I became a Christian, all my doubts were sorted, and all my questions were, were sorted out at that point. In great loss comes great asking and questioning. Maybe you're there this morning. What, is Jesus, can, can I trust him? What is going on? There's an opportunity this morning to know the God of hope. And to enjoy the city you live in in new ways. And here's where we move from breadth, loving the city broadly, to depth, loving the city deeply. From embracing the whole city to wanting the best for it. The God who made the world and everything in it, carries Paul, um, Paul carries on, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. If the Christian God is God at all, if my God is God at all, if your God is a God at all, he must be bigger than you. Yeah? And not need what you have made for it. If my God needs the food that I make, well then he is reliant on me, and that makes me in some way uh, uh, level with him, and in some way a God. I am created from dust, and he can't be. Or else he is like me and he's not God. And this is kind of Paul's thing. He's going down this line of, hang on a sec, you have all these things that are made and you worship them. They're, they're just made. They're made, they're, you, you fashioned them with your hands or you created those environments. You created that relationship. You, you made those things happen. How can they really be God? God is bigger than the man-made temples, the idols, the crosses, the iconography. But he's also bigger than anything I can create, including the highs and the lows, the relationships and the aspirations. He has to be. Because if he's not, then he's not God. I'm seeing a few nods. Paul's point here is that the God he proclaims, the God I proclaim, is bigger, greater and far more majestic than anything a fragile, easy-to-break human can make. I cannot make anything that is divine. It is impossible for me to do that. And therefore, anything made by human hands cannot be God. This is Paul's point. I'm surrounded by these things, but they can't be. He is bigger than the idols of our culture. They may be the big and beautiful, they may be big and beautiful, but they have no power. Idols are simply good things that have become ultimate things, great things that have somehow achieved I can't live without status in our lives. So I guess with that, God doesn't need this, the, the social context of our pubs and our clubs. He doesn't need a TV channel to, 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 to work. He doesn't need a secure relationship, a political campaign, or a website to make himself God. He already is God, and he needs none of those things. And as all those things are created, he isn't them either. He isn't a political campaign or a figurehead to stand at the, at the front of our religious campaign. He is God. He is God. And all those things are created, and he isn't them If God needs me, then he isn't God, I am. And that's the litmus test for whether God is really God. 
Is it created or not? More than that, God doesn't need anything we make. It pleases him when we work hard for him, give our time and our energy to him, but he's not served by human hands in a way that if we stopped, he would cease. If we stop doing Sunday services, and you know, so we stop worshiping, oh, but you know, we, we gather together to worship and glorify God. Yeah, but if we all stopped worshiping, God would not cease to be God. He would not cease to be worshipful. He would not cease to be worthy or majestic or king of all kings. He is completely self-sufficient from all of our praise and our worship. Does our praise and our worship make a difference? Yes, because he loves it when we engage with him and recognize who he is. But does he need it? No. If he needed it, then we could withdraw it and hold him to ransom in some way. But he doesn't. And therefore, we worship him. You know, there's an old hymn, uh, my soul, um, I'm just trying to remember it. Um, It's gone from my, my, my head completely gone i didn't write it down either um and uh, there's a the author of this hymn writes this hymn about god my soul is well there we go my soul is well uh, my soul is well it, it is well it is well with my soul and he writes it at the end of great calamity and difficulty because god doesn't change and god is still to be worshipped even in the midst of all of those things if if he was in some way dependent on us then we could say i will do this if you make this happen in my life and god is god And he is above and beyond all of those things. God is independent of anything created, but fully dependent on himself. He is wholly self-sufficient, unlike us. Even Seneca the Younger, one of Paul's contemporary philosophers, agreed that God couldn't need anything to be God. He would just be an idol. And Paul Beattie, one of the, um, um, he was the winner of the Man Booker Prize in 2016, said, Heroes, idols, they're never who you think they are. They're shorter, nastier, smellier, and when you finally meet them, there's something that makes you want to choke the out of them. It, there, there is a sense where our culture is really good at spotting. Do you know, idols are just idols. We're all searching for grace. God, I want to find you. So Paul keeps going. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all, on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Christians would have heard Adam as the one man. Everyone else, though, Paul's um, intention as he was speaking to people who didn't know Jesus, would have been the detail to which God is involved in the humanity of life, the boundaries of time and space, the space of my home and our city God is fully in control of. That God is not an idol in a corner or a project or a pastime, but a person, God himself, deeply involved in the everything of life, the everything of your life. It's tremendous. He's not a Sunday tribute or a theological study piece. He is God involved in your life. And Paul at this time is not that fussed about whether or not he's dealing with their creation story or trying to unhinge it in any way. He is trying to teach them the fundamental story of God and his people, that God is bigger than the religious framework that you have created. God is bigger than the philosophical framework that you have created. And sometimes we get sidelined in the church and in in our wider community by biblical opinions, by church dogma, by history and church politics and we forget the main thing and Paul goes straight for the main thing God is near to all and you can find him 
He isn't a foreign deity or a way of life. He is God and he is near. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul continues his speech. He has loved broadly and now he loves deeply. There is too much at stake in people's lives to pussyfoot around the niceness or the niceties of church dogma. There is too much at stake to talk to people about church life and not talk to them about Jesus. There is too much at stake for Paul to try and, try and honour all of their gods and not talk about Jesus. He is the big main deal. I wonder how many conversations you have about church. I remember going out on the streets for the first time with, um, with Matt and others when we first started the Oak and we would go out and he would challenge us and say try not to have too many conversations about church because everyone's got an opinion about church. Talk about Jesus. The moment you talk about Jesus people either go and flee from it or they really want to know about it. And so Paul goes straight for it, and he starts talking about God. We're from him, we're made by him, and therefore we're known by him. If he were gold or silver and stone, so goes the thinking, so would we be. Paul uses the ancient writers in Greek culture to make his point. As with Rory, the rag and bone man, or Paul Beatty, the author, our culture is wonderfully aware of its need for God and the shortcomings of our idols. An idea, an idol, a philosophy, a religion cannot satisfy and be truly God. Only someone beyond all of those can be God. And so we keep moving on. We've loved broadly, we love deeply, and so Paul keeps going to love costly. There is a cost to loving a city. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The whole passage has been Paul's declaration that you cannot have a man-made God truly as God, but you need a God-made man. He has spoken on all of their philosophies and religions and now he's turning it up side down. He is speaking to a court of judges about one who's a higher judge. We all judge but one is greater than us and he judges us guilty of idolatry but then pursues the only way we can be free and released into life. The son of God was appointed to die and rise again. The the resurrection of Jesus is proof that he is not an idol or a good man or a legalistic religion worth following but he is God. I wonder if you're a Christian here this morning, whether you have dwelt or pondered on the resurrection in any time recent. We often focus on the forgiveness of our sins and Jesus dying on the cross, but he is raised to life. And because he is raised to life, that makes him God. Because no one else, no one else can. The rulers at the time of Jesus' death could have moved him from the tomb. They knew that would just lead to an increase in believers and would have let out a press release, so they didn't do that. The disciples could have moved him from the tomb, but they got killed for continuing to speak of his resurrection. Why would you do that? You'd just say, no, 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 it was us. Over 500 people saw him. He was raised. But why raised from the dead? Why is that the big deal for Paul and for us? Because the only way to bring life to all people for all time and to see peoples and cities and nations restored and renewed is if the one thing that holds them back is destroyed. The one thing that holds them back in death is the only certainty and the limitation of life that we have. 
It is the source of all fear and, and the end point of our worries. And the resurrection breaks its power. No other idols that Paul was speaking to or we could talk about could do that. The resurrection breaks its power and it unleashes the possibility of life with God. The route through to walking in the freedom of the resurrection of Jesus is costly. It requires repentance. That means turning away from everything else and pursuing God, asking his forgiveness and walking in the freedom of life eternal. You may have followed Jesus your whole life or followed him for years, but placed a thousand things on different statues all around your life with Jesus as one of them. I really like my big telly. It's just one of the idols in my life. My guitar, I mean, if you picked it up and smashed it, I think I would weep. It is, it is an idol in my life. It is one of those things. My kids, oh, let's not go there. I wonder what it is for you that we have put on all of these different spaces and Jesus is just another one of them. It's our Sunday morning one. Or it's our midweek small group. You may have come here today wondering what all this is about. And you're in exactly the same boat. A ton of things that we hope for and give our lives to. And today our response is all the same. To love broadly. To enjoy our cities not as idols but as a gift of God. To love deeply. To let our spirits be provoked. And to get in the dirt to rescue. Because to not is not really an answer. And to love costly. To choose to repent and receive life from God, accepting Jesus as your saviour and your resurrected king, not because of religion or dogma, but because Jesus is the only God that isn't an idol. He's the only one that gives you life and life eternal. And so as we finish, we come to the closing few points from, uh, from Paul's speech. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, because it's bizarre. No one else has done that. But others said, we'll hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, I'm saying these quickly, and a woman named Damaris and the others with him. The response is personal and it's pivotal. It's pivotal. If the resurrection is proof of God's heart for humanity, then join with me and Paul in following Christ, in choosing him again responding to God for all of us is huge and life changing and I would suggest this morning that there is a choice for all of us to make to choose Christ again this morning Dionysius was one of the high court learned intellectual, clever a judge and he responded Damaris probably an onlooker, everyday citizen observer of the court responded the gospel's good news for all cities and for all peoples it's good news for you this morning can we stand together i'd love to pray and i think matt's going to lead us in response and worship heavenly father we come before you this morning lord aware that you are god of gods that you are beyond and above all that we can grasp or imagine create or understand And this morning, Lord, we want to ask, Holy Spirit, would you just point out those areas in our lives that are kind of on a par with Jesus, where we've maybe reduced Jesus and lifted up a whole ton of other stuff. Lord, we want to enjoy those things, but not as ultimate things. We want to enjoy them as your gifts. We want to enjoy Jesus this morning. Lord, we repent. We choose this morning to turn away from those things and to look to Jesus. Lord, lead us. 
Lord, fill us. Lord, help us to enjoy our city and all that you are doing, but help us to love it deeply and to bring the gospel to this city, that that this city might be renewed and restored, that the dark places might have light shone in, that the difficult situations might be restored in the name of Jesus. And Lord, Lord, we do, we repent, but we repent because it leads to life. And so, Lord, this morning we choose to walk with you this morning. And we ask, Holy Spirit, lead us from this moment. This moment of repentance, this moment of of placing the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ above all others. And Lord, from this moment, Lord, lead us into life this week. Lead us into joy this week. Lead us into hope this week. Lead us into love this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.